My name is Neil McCluskey. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute, and it is my great pleasure today to introduce you to James Tooley, whose book, The Beautiful Tree, A Personal Journey into How the World's Poorest People Are Educating Themselves. You probably no doubt saw this at the table outside as well. Uh, I think this book has changed the conversation about the role in profit in education. Um, and as you'll hear, I think what people are now determining is that the role of profit in education is a good one, which is something that people really do need to hear very loudly and very consistently. Uh, since its first release in 2009, The Beautiful Tree has garnered myriad accolades, uh, but perhaps none greater than the 2010 Sir Anthony Fisher International Memorial Award for making, quote, the greatest contribution to public understanding of the free society. It's a tremendously powerful book, as you will hear about, uh, and today we celebrate its release in paperback. So, see, paperback. Uh, James Tooley is a professor of education policy at Newcastle University. There he is the director of the E.G. West Center, which is dedicated to choice, uh, competition, and entrepreneurship in education. Uh, he's worked for over 25 years in educational development, including years of on-location experience in the developing world. He has served as a researcher at Manchester and Oxford universities. His books include, of course, The Beautiful Tree, as well as The Miseducation of Women and Reclaiming Education. Now our online bio, uh, where James, by the way, is also a Cato adjunct, the online bio says that James currently lives in Hyderabad, India. Uh, but as I understand it, I'm sure he'll fill us in, he now calls somewhere else his home base, uh, and to be honest, his home base is almost impossible to track because he is traveling all over the world all the time. And so, he just flew in from everywhere. Please welcome James Tooley. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, how we're going to run this today, we're going to start with some questions and answers with James and myself. Uh, and then about halfway through our time together, I'm going to open up to questions from the audience. Uh, we may or may not get some Twitter questions as well. There are people watching online, people here, and hopefully we can have a very good back and forth to learn more about Professor Tooley's work. Uh, but sort of to set things up, I'll ask a few questions, and probably none is more important than, how did you kind of stumble into this, your research and mm. discovery of these for-profit schools in, in some of the poorest parts of the world? Yeah, and, and I think I can show a few slides to, to illustrate this. Uh, it's great to be here. Sorry about the weather. I think maybe we brought to the weather from England. You know, notoriously, it's always raining there. Um, I, I, it was about, it's in the year 2000. I was a sort of expert on private education. Um, I've become an expert, a reluctant expert, because as we all know, and the accepted wisdom then was very clear, private education is about the elite. Private education is for the upper middle classes. And I was on a journey in India, in Hyderabad, where I did live for a while, um, on a mission, as they call it, from the International Finance Corporation, the private arm of the World Bank, helping promote elite private education. I was there doing due diligence for the Indian School of Business. And I was, as I say, I was dissatisfied because my work, I felt, shouldn't be about the rich. For whatever reason, I felt I wanted to be focusing on what the poor were doing but in private education, what to do. So I, on a day off, I went into the, the old city of Hyderabad. I went to the Charminar here, taking a picture, taken at night, 
where I'd read in my rough guide to India, the slums of the old city were based. And I went with a hunch about what I might find, but was delighted when I did find the down a street corner into an alleyway, I found a low cost private school, a private school in those days charging around a dollar a month. So suddenly the parts of my life seemed to come together, the interest in private education and private schools in the slums serving the poor. I went to this one school, then I found another and another, and I soon connected to about 500 schools which were part of a federation. And I spoke to parents, why were they sending their children to these private schools when they were poor? Clearly they were poor, and yet the, the government schools, the public schools as you call them here, the, the government schools were free. They provided free lunch at, you know, free lunch and free books and everything. And parents told me their children were abandoned in the public schools. So I then went to visit one of these public schools. I'll never forget the sight of those 130 children sitting on the floor in a classroom, eager to learn, learning nothing, and contrasting that with what was going on in the private school. So I came back here to Washington, D.C., really excited, very excited, went to the World Bank, the IFC, telling people the story. People said, no, 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 no. There's nothing much going on here. Calm down, Tooley, calm down. You found maybe a few businessmen ripping off the poor. That didn't seem to fit in what I saw. So I got funding, managed to get grant funding from the John Templeton Foundation, and went on a journey, looking in places like Kibera here, which is not far away from the shopping mall in Nairobi, Kenya, where such terrible things were happening last week. The accepted wisdom says something, a boy like this, um, Frank, where does he go to school? The accepted wisdom say he must go to public school or he's out of school. We followed Frank into the slum, going along the Uganda railway there, into Kibera, and in fact he goes to a low-cost private school, one of about a hundred in the slum of Kibera. Or we went, there's another one, or we went to even in rural China, where we were told definitely not by the, the British aid agencies, definitely you won't find any private schools there. We abandoned cars, we traveled on these three-wheelers in remote villages where harvesting was going on. It was September, harvesting was going on, just as you would see it for hundreds and hundreds of years. We asked people and eventually found in the most remote villages, in these foothills of the Himalayas, private schools, low-cost private schools serving these poor communities. In fact, we found 586 of these low-cost private schools in these remote mountains. So this was all really exciting. Then in Ghana, in the fishing villages like this one, Borciano, in just outside of the city, the capital city of Accra. Again, where does Victoria, where does she go to school? She's a daughter of a fisherman. She's the uh, daughter of a fisherman and a fishmonger couple. Where does she go to school? You probably guessed by now. She's in school, yes, but not a public school, in a low-cost private school, the Supreme Academy in Borciano, run by this man, Theophilus. Um, we actually, we did a film, I, some of you might have seen it, called The Ultimate Resource, where we had, we went on the fishing boat with the father, and wonderful, going out at three in the morning, coming back with fish that they caught, Joshua, his name. We asked him, why does he send his child to a private school? And he told us, well, he tried the government school, it's right next to his house. He tried it, he'd seen the teachers wander in at 11, leave at midday, and he said the reason why 
the private schools are better than the government schools is because there is a private owner. If you don't teach as expected, you'll be fired and replaced. It was just like a fishing boat as far as he was concerned. People, if they didn't turn up for work, they didn't deserve to work. Totally unlike in the government schools. So this, I think, has been something for me to celebrate. The beautiful tree, as you say, just out in paperback today, is a celebration of these schools. It travels across those countries and others and says there's something extraordinarily exciting going on here. The poor are not acquiescing, as I said, in the, in the government schools, the public schools, where their children are abandoned. They're now in these private schools, a majority of kids in the, in the poor areas. 70% of the poor kids in urban and peri-urban areas are in these low-cost private schools. We tested, we've tested around 35,000 children now. These low-cost private school children outperform the government school children at a fraction of the cost, and the fees are affordable to parents on poverty line in incomes. So it's a great success story. I'm, I'm thrilled to be sharing this with you today. So, so the book came out. You've been doing your work for a long time. I know that initially aid agencies around the world, and, and I think by a lot of the public, heard what you were saying, and they were skeptical at the very least. Mm. How's it changed? Have you seen changing in attitudes among the public or among aid agencies? Are there people who are now willing to accept that there could be a role for profit or that these schools even exist? Yeah. And are they changing their policies? As we yeah. Saw? I mean, it, the first few years of doing this work, they were rather lonely times. Um, in fact, one, uh, one of our critics um, uh, wrote in response to something I'd written, uh, Thule is plowing a lonely furrow. No one is listening to him. Long may it stay that way. Because people at first didn't believe these schools existed. And then when they started to have to see the evidence, when you get photographs and evidence, when they saw these schools really were there, they then started to say, well, there's no significance to these schools. They're businessmen ripping off the poor. They have no significance. But things have changed. And I, in the book, I, you know, I really take the British government aid agency to task, DFID, the Department for International Development. I take them to task and say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very critical about, very rude, in fact, in some places about them. But uh, they've forgiven me for that. And they now because they went to visit some of these schools, the permanent secretary, the secretary of state for international development, some key people in government went to visit some of these schools, some of the schools I describe in the chapter in Nigeria, for instance. They went to see those schools. And I, you know, I, I, anyone who goes to visit these schools and contrasts them with the public schools and sees what's going on in these schools, anyone will be touched, I think, and moved by the phenomenon and realize that it's something that you want to work alongside rather than against. So I, I, there has been a lot of change. I mean, I could, there's many more things I could say to answer that question, but I'll just uh, I'll come back to you. Well, I'll see if I can goad you into more answers. Yeah. And they can be rude about government agencies. Yes. We're fine with that. Yeah, but we uh, are a live podcast, you know. And, that's right. Yes. And uh, many of these government agencies apparently are not open right now. <laughs> oh, um, in, the, but we in the U.S., yes. Yeah, we yes. can still be rude if necessary, yeah. Yeah. if accurate. Um, you write in the postscript in the new version of the book, uh, or the new um, the paperback, 
that the, the British Department of International Development, yeah. it's always hard DFID. to remember the names yeah. of every yeah. group, but they've started to provide vouchers basically for the private schools. And, and so you, you talk a little bit about that, but also I have sort of a, a pointed question that gets to what we do here at Cato. Has there been an attachment of rules or regulations to those, and, and do you think that they're, if they do exist, the rules and regulations, are they positives, negatives? What do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, so, so the British International Development, and, and you know, not just because we're a live podcast, podcast, I really do want to praise the way that they have changed their view based on evidence of, about what's happening in, in poor countries. So they, they've come in, in Pakistan, they are doing some voucher or voucher-like proposal for these low-cost private schools in the Punjab, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the interventions in Lagos, Nigeria, they're doing a much more subtle way of saying, how can we help the work market work better for the poor or work even better? And they're having a, perhaps a more hands-off position there. But in, in terms of the vouchers, I think there's a danger. There's a definite danger that well-meaning people, you know, and we're all, you know, we're all well-meaning people working in development, so must never, one, one must never doubt that. Well-meaning people can come in and interfere with a functioning market or a market that is functioning pretty well, you can interfere with that. And, and vouchers, for instance, if they're, if they're targeted at everyone or even go via the school and there's room for, you know, perhaps some amb ambiguity about how the schools get funded, that could totally ruin what makes these schools good. I mean, one, one parent we spoke to in, in Kenya put it like this to us. See, this is a parent who his children had been in the private school in Kibera, in that slum I showed you earlier in Nairobi. His, his daughter was there. He moved her to the public school on the outskirts of the slum when free elementary education was introduced by the, the government. Um, and then after a year or so, he moved her back to the private schools. And he, he said to us, by way of analogy, he said, if you go to the market and are offered free fruit and veg, they'll be rotten. If you want fresh fruit and veg, you have to pay for it. And maybe what he was saying was actually that the act of paying for schooling, even though the fees are low, but it's a significant amount for these parents, that act of paying keeps the schools accountable to them keeps the teachers teaching when they should be, and that's significant. And if you break that, you might break the power of this market. Mm -hmm. Have either providers or students, families, or, or have any of them ever expressed an interest in getting vouchers or not getting vouchers? Is yeah. there any suspicion I mean, of government coming yeah. to I mean, there, there is research. There's, there's quite a lot of qualitative research done in this, I mean, lots of people are pouring in to research this area now, so it's a, it's a hot topic for research. You know, books of edited collections are published, articles published. A lot of the qualitative work asks questions of parents, and you don't know how they're asked, and so you're not sure about the answers. But one typical question would be, it seems to be something like, well, would you prefer free public education, or, you know, are you, are you content having to pay for something? And parents typically say would prefer free. You know, they're poor. But I, I think that would also be the same of us, wouldn't it? If we're saying, do you prefer, do you, do you worry about having to pay money when you go to Walmart for food, or would you prefer food for free? 
I think we'd probably all say other things being equal, that would be in brackets, wouldn't it? In parentheses, mm -hmm. we wouldn't say that. Other things being equal, yeah. If food was free and it was as good quality as in Walmart, a good must choice and the rest of it, yeah, of course we'd not prefer not to pay. But I think that's the brackets, the parentheses is missing. So I think parents would say other things being equal, I think that's what they mean. If the government schools, the public schools, were as good as the private schools, if we got what we wanted, if teachers turned up and taught and our children were not abandoned, then I think, yeah, if you could get that for free, why not? Mm -hmm. The question is, can you get it for free? And my guess is you can't. So, so there's that sort of sense. So vouchers would be an alternative way of doing that. Yeah, some would say, yeah, if you can give us vouchers. But, but actually, some parents are quite sophisticated. I remember the first time, the first time I went to one of these private schools in, in the poor parts of Hyderabad. There was a poor Muslim woman in a veil waiting. She owed a couple of months, um, I think it was four months uh, fees for a child. And the fees then were 50, 50 rupees, $1 a month. So she owed 200 rupees, $4. And of course, I being the, you know, the Westerner with a heart comes in and says, oh sure, I've got, 200 rupees, have 500 rupees, you know, I wanted to give it to her. Pay your fees, you know, don't, don't. She said, no, I'll pay for my fees, thank you very much. It's my child, I'm responsible. Stop that sort of, that patronizing. So maybe some parents also feel that about vouchers. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm not sure whether we've encountered that in our voucher arguments, but it's quite possible that people yeah. here feel the same way. Possibly. We'll, we'll, we'll work our way to the problems here in a few <laughs> yeah. minutes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I guess we'll start to touch on that now. So uh, from time to time in my debates with people on education policy, and if the idea of profit ever comes up, I'll sometimes cite your book and say, look, the, the profit motive is good. So long as you have to earn the business of the people you are, who want the education, you are held in check. You are accountable. And what a lot of people say is, well, you can't look at these places that you've studied and say that they're at all useful as evidence that profit could work. What they really tell you is that somebody really needs to improve the public schools in those countries. Mm. And so what would you say to someone who said, it's not that this is a good story, it's just that those public schools are a bad story yeah. we need to fix. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably the considered consensus now or on these schools. So our critics now recognize these schools exist, they recognize they're doing something, they recognize poor parents are preferring them, you know, 70% of poor parents are using them in urban and peri-urban areas. So the, you know, the considered view is, okay, this is sticking plaster, as we say in England, what do you call the um, lastoplast or uh, band-aid? Yeah, you say band-aid here. You. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's what it is. It's a band-aid over a system, but the real task is to improve the public sector. And I, I have, you know, three or four responses to that. One is, you know, I've got nothing against people who want to improve the public sector. Um, hang on. I think William Eastley says trillions of dollars have been spent in development aid. Certainly a lot of money. Anyway, I can't remember it's that much. Um, has been spent trying to improve the public sector in exactly the countries we're working in, Ghana, uh, Nigeria, um, India, now in other Sierra Leone, Liberia and South Sudan where we're working. Um, and it doesn't seem to be making the public schools better. In fact, if you look at the number of children attending these private schools, they seem to be going up. The private schools seem to be depleting of children. Sorry, the public schools are depleting of children. The private schools are increasing. So 
Many people are trying to improve the public sector. Good luck to them. If, you know, if they succeed and they are free and they are good, these private schools will go out of business. You know, so that's their consolation. If you succeed, that's fine. Will they succeed? That's another matter. Um, so far they haven't, and maybe there are structures within the public system that will not allow them to succeed. Maybe the unions are too strong. Maybe the, the culture within the public sector is such that teachers will not turn up. Teachers will not teach when they should do. And maybe the advantage that the private sector has, particularly now, you may, I mean, who knows, you might be asking about technology or something, but, but a lot of people in education now feel education is on the cusp of something really exciting with the technological possibilities. Those can be brought into the private sector. The private sector can innovate. The incentives are in the right direction. In the public sector, they won't be. So I'm happy for other people, you know, if they want to promote the, pub, the public sector. Not many of us were promoting the private sector until recently, but this is, this is where I am. I think there's a huge need here. There's huge things to celebrate. There's huge things still to be done. In the book, you talk about the, the test scores that you've done, the examinations to see the outcomes yeah. comparing the, the government schools to the private schools. And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Beyond that, though, I'm interested if there's planning for studies that will follow students as they move along in their career, once they're done with elementary school, to see if there's greater attainment or educational attainment for kids who go to the private schools. Maybe even someday workforce outcomes and things yeah. like that. So, so, so we, we, have, we have done a lot of studies. We've, we've published studies from the work we did that's in The Beautiful Tree. We've published them in reputable journals. Um, this was work conducted by myself, Dr. Pauline Dixon from Newcastle, and, and other team members. And the studies have been published, which show, I mean, for economists here, we've used econometric methods to control for background variables and also to control for any possible selectivity bias using the, the Heckman-Lee two-step. It's not a dance, it's an econometric um, method to control for this. Um, and and, and pretty, you know, it's pretty clear that the raw scores show um, private school children outperforming the government. And then when you adapt for all this possible better family background, and so on in the private schools, still these schools are outperforming the public schools. So that's, that's always the case. And now we've done other studies with the same team, but also David Longfield, who's here now. Um, we're now looking at Sierra Leone, Liberia, South Sudan, going to the world's most difficult places. And we're just analyzing, finally analyzing that data now. We're going to the World Bank after this to report on some of our um, pr provisional results. But again, the same results are coming in. Um, and now we're distinguishing between for-profit and non-profit private schools, because there are both. And it seems there's a mixed picture, but certainly the for-profit schools seem to be standing their own um, against, certainly against the government, they're always better, and often against the non-profits as well. Um, but you're right, we've, for economists, again, this is a cross-sectional analysis. We use as a proxy for prior attainment the children's achievement on an IQ test, a non-verbal reasoning test. So, so that's a proxy for prior attainment, um, but ideally one would do longitudinal studies. The problem with longitudinal studies, we started a couple. Well, children are very hard to track through, you know, poor children, particularly are 
often can be quite mobile, whereas the private schools are often all through schools, so you could track the children in the private schools, and we've tracked them quite successfully. In the government schools, typically the, the, the government schools, the public schools will be um, nursery and then lower primary and then upper primary, separate schools, and no one knows where children are going. There's no tracking of where they're going. So it was impossible to track the children. Um, we'd like to do it. We haven't succeeded in that. Anecdotally, it seems that if there is real human capital development, and our tests are about children's achievement in literacy and numeracy in particular, and if the children in the private schools are doing better than the children in the government schools, then you know, it's, it's almost logically you'd expect them to be doing better in careers and, and, and work um, because those things matter. But we haven't got evidence for that, no. Um, now we're going to we'll take it a little bit closer to home for us. Is there any evidence that you've seen or heard of that this sort of phenomenon is anywhere in developed countries, in the richer countries? Um, yeah, and if, if so, or if not, why? Why do you think it has or yeah. hasn't caught on in countries like the United States or, or yeah. the UK? So, so my guess is there, there, are, there are a very small number of genuinely low-cost private schools in places like America and, and the developed world, as you say. Then, of course, there's another phenomenon, homeschooling, which is growing here massively, which in a sense is a somewhat similar phenomenon. And then there are things that might crowd out this phenomenon, like charter schools, for instance, in America, which are public initiatives trying, in a sense, to replicate some of the same urges. So charter schools, what, what do they do? They try and say, OK, there are entrepreneurs who are interested in education who are likely to step in if um, supply side is liberated in some way. So charter schools cater for that. And there's also, excuse me, that dissatisfaction amongst poor parents um, with the public alternative, so charter schools cater for that. Those are the two things, really, that lead to low-cost private schools elsewhere. It could be that charter schools and free schools and academies in England, for instance, it could be that those are crowding out this sort of initiative. But I, I gave a talk um, a year or two ago back now in New Zealand, in an auditorium, just like, actually, so you've got rain coming here. This was in Christchurch just after the earthquake there. And I promise you, there was, it was a chandeliers hanging down and there were aftershocks of the earthquake. It was terrifying for me, you know, not having experienced this before. So the rain, I can deal with that. Um, we're, we're kind of wimpy here. <laughs> yeah, you are. To <laughs> yeah. Come to New Zealand. Um, anyway, I, I gave this similar talk about what I'd found in other countries, raising that question, or someone asked the question, and I said, I doubt if they're here in New Zealand. Someone came up to me and said, I'll take you to one tomorrow. And um, he was a Maori, and he took me to a Maori low-cost private school in a converted office in downtown Auckland and said this is one of a number, small number, but there, is a, there are schools where the Maori feel totally neglected in the public schools, want an alternative, so there are these schools. And it was, it was a wonderful experience finding that. My guess is it's also true to a certain little extent here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I should also, in New Zealand, you know, they have all the Lord of the Rings stuff going on, so they're used to very <laughs> scary things. Exactly. Um, have you noticed as you've, uh, you know, as you've gone along that there is growing acceptance of not just people sort of acquiescing to 
profit existing in education, but kind of embracing it as something that has good, powerful effects, or at least potentially powerful effects. Yes, there, there is some evidence. And again, the British Department for International Development, there, there was an article in The Guardian, which is, I guess, the equivalent of your New York Times in terms of political, um, uh, uh, not bias, perspective. Um, <laughs> it, 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 there was an article in The Guardian a couple of days ago, which was castigating the British aid agency for wishing to support potentially for-profit, low-cost private schools in, in poor areas. And I mean, I think the, and I think a lot of people are still a bit uncomfortable with it, to be fair. I mean, I, and because of that discomfort, I, you know, I tend to use the word private a lot and I don't talk about for-profit. Um, but in the poor areas in which we work, no one is bothered. I, I, I would say no one is bothered by this. Um, I'll give you an example. In, in, in Liberia recently, in Monrovia, we were doing some study, and I spoke to a young woman who was actually uh, from one of these poor communities, one of these poor communities herself, and I said, we want to find out, are the for-profit or non-profit low-cost private schools better? Which do you think it will be? And, you know, if you ask that in America or in Britain, they would all say, oh, the non-profit, of course, because they're genuinely concerned with the poor, whereas the for-profit are concerned with something else. They might actually hit you for suggesting yeah, uh, for-profit yeah, is good. Yeah, you can see my lip, don't you? That was a recent uh, fight I got into over this. Um, the, the, um, but she said, and, and, sh and people would say this all the time, um, she said, I think the for-profit will be better. I said, okay, why, why is that? And she said, um, well, if you're for-profit, then you've got to be focused all the time on your children and their parents, because that's the only source of your income. You know, you charge fees, that's the only source. If you're a non-profit, yes, you might charge fees, but you can also get donations from outside, from a church, from a mosque, from a non-government organization. And so you'll be focused, yes, you might focus a bit on inside, but you'll be focused outside, predominantly, to raise money for your school. And she said, the people who will be focusing inside are gonna be better than the people who are focusing outside. I thought that was a very interesting answer. Um, I think that would be an answer that many people respond to. Um, if you look at the, 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 the range of for-profit providers, the proprietors, I don't think parents in those communities will be accusing them of all the nasty things they'd be accused of here, profiteering. For instance, our evidence just from, um, David, from Liberia, I think, showing the, um, was it Sierra Leone, showing the, um, the teacher salaries, yeah, Sierra Leone, the teacher salaries in the for-profit schools are higher than the non-profits. That's counterintuitive. If you think the for-profits are gonna be profiteering, they'd screw down, wouldn't they, the teacher salaries? No, their salaries are higher than the non-profits. That's a finding that supports this case, that actually the for-profits are focusing on what they need to focus on even more clearly than the non-profits. So do you see a disconnect then, that I hear this a lot, that education isn't supposed to be about competition, now, I think that it's, when people say that, it sounds to me like they're confusing two things. They don't think students should compete against each other. Yeah. But they often seem to, when you talk about it with them, they really seem to think that there's something bad about schools and educators yeah. competing. Yeah, uh, I hear it all the time. What do you yeah. think? Where yeah. is that wrong? Where are they yeah. sort of following and, a bad trail? And I, I'm on a sort of little American tour, combining talks with fundraising and other things, and I was at Bard College on Saturday, I think, and... 
um, the president of Bard College was precisely, this was his theme, competition in public education in schools is unequivocally bad and you don't even have to explain why it's bad. You know, mm -hmm. it's just bad. It's a, it's a not a good thing. Um, but talk to parents, again, you know, what, what I, I take pride in this, you know, everything I know about education and the markets, I've learned from poor parents and entrepreneurs in poor areas. Um, to talk to poor parents, ask them that question, would they prefer competition or non-competition? Well, they might, they might, again, like the answer to public schools earlier, they might not be, not be clear about that. But ask them a different question and say, if you're going to a school that you know is not good enough, would you, would you like there to be an alternative school where you could swap, or at least that your school owner knows you can potentially swap, so maybe that makes them keep the standards higher? And they will say, of course I prefer that. And that's why, you know, I can take you down poor, you know, street in any slum in Nigeria or India, and you can see five or six of these low-cost private schools. Genuine competition. Doesn't rule out cooperation as well. Um, these private schools that are in competition might get together in federations to help promote their combined interests, or they might get together to have shared, you know, weekends have combined science fairs or sports competitions. So you can have cooperation as well, but when push comes to shove, this school is doing better, it can attract parents, the other ones know that's true, so they also keep their standards high. Mm -hmm. I think competition in schooling in the second sense you described, it's unequivocally good. Okay. Well, I agree. <laughs> right. But Consensus. we are still <laughs> fighting that, that battle every day. Mm -hmm. um, so you've talked about you're doing work now in Sierra Leone uh, and also in Liberia. Yeah. Um, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you also doing work in Latin America now? And can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Because that, that's kind of a new... Hemisphere for you, I guess. Yeah. So, so the research, so we're continuing research work, and I'm doing some other work with Change of Schools, which we might talk about later, but research is carrying on in South Sudan, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. So in the world's most difficult places, again, the same things we're finding, really exciting private school markets for the poor. You know, the whole, the whole, the whole thing that we found elsewhere is being repeated there. No, I... I I've just, so a few days ago before New York, I was in San Francisco and then I was in Honduras. Mm -hmm. I was in Honduras a few, a few days ago and I was invited there to see, you know, does the market for low cost private schools exist? And um, is it possible to create a chain of low cost private schools um, as a business? And, and both things, both questions are answered, I think, in the affirmative. The, there are low cost private schools there. So in Africa, the schools might be charging five to $10 per month. Now, in, in Honduras, I think the cost of living is slightly higher, so maybe about $15 per month um, there. But these schools exist, and I think the business model could work there. Other pe I think from Cato, I think you've done some work in Peru. I think people here... Um, it's possible. Uh, yeah. I haven't. Ian Vasquez. I don't pay attention to anything that's yeah. not me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very sensible uh, outlook on life. <laughs> um, yeah, I think some work has been done. Guatemala, there was a little research study done, I think. Um, and I think there have been some, oh, oh, for example, Edify that is loaning to schools now in Ghana, low-cost private schools, they are also loaning to low-cost low -cost private schools in Dominican Republic. So clearly there's a market there for them. Um, 
and you know, I don't know no hablo español. I don't speak Spanish, so I'm one of these terrible sort of monolingual Brits. So there's a lot of work to be done in Anglo countries. I would love to see this sort of research and this sort of developments done in mm-hmm. Latin America too. Um, yeah, but I can't. I can't work there as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're already making some inroads, though. So that is. Very good to hear. Uh, and you mentioned you are, I can't remember them all. You're involved in several, I'll call them ventures because that sounds business-like. Mm. Um, could you talk a little bit about those things that you're involved in, these yeah. organizations that have now sprung up yeah. to, to help? So, 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 so when I started celebrating and publishing, you know, as, as in this book, and celebrating the existence of this sector, I mean, in this book, I tend to be saying, these schools are better than the public schools. You know, let's get behind them and celebrate that. But the people within the schools, actually in the last chapter I mentioned this as well, the people within the schools, the proprietors, the parents and so on, were saying something like, yes, we're better than the public schools, but don't you think the public schools are setting a rather low bar for us? Um, You know, I mean, it's not my research. Other research shows that teachers are only teaching 50% of the time they should be teaching. Um, And, you know, they're, they're pretty... You know, is that the, what, how you want to be comparing yourself? So people were saying, can't you help us improve in various ways? So I've got involved in various ventures. Some of them are for-profit, some non-profit. So in India, I, I, I started with Mohammed Anwar, who's an Indian entrepreneur, Empathy Learning Systems. And that's a small chain of schools. It's catering for a predominantly Muslim population in the old city of Hyderabad and, the other, and its Anwarans. Um, in Ghana, four years ago with Kendonko, a uh, 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 a Ghanaian entrepreneur, we started a company called Omega Schools. Um, and Omega Schools is, again, a for-profit chain of these schools based on the idea if you create a chain, you can have economies of scale, clearly. You can share information. You can have a brand that parents you know, can solve the information problem for parents. And you can raise investment. So we started this with exploring those concepts. And uh, four years ago, we opened our first two schools Last week, we opened our 37th school. We've now got around 20,000 students. And I believe we'll go to scale very, very quickly there. Um, and I, I'm, I think this is a very positive, again, a model showing independent research suggests we're, we're definitely better than the government schools and we're certainly holding our own against other lower-cost private schools, improve, better than them in most cases. And that, I think, is a great model. Other people are doing similar things now coming in there and doing things on this for-profit level. Um, we've just started the same in Sierra Leone. So we opened our second school uh, also last, this week, last week, last week. And we'll have five schools by January. And again, we'll be in a position then to raise investment to go to scale. These are low-cost private schools in a low-cost chain of private schools. And I would like to create a global group of these low-cost chains. Um, let's see how, how we get on with these first few anyway. And then finally, there are some non-profit things I'm doing with, um, in Nigeria. Did I mention AFID already? No. AFID, AFID is, the, is the Association of Formidable Education Development. It's the association of low-cost private schools in Lagos, well, in Nigeria. Um, we have 3,000 members. I'm the patron of this federation. And again, we're doing interesting things in terms of teacher training, um, advocacy work, p- persuading government that... The low-cost private schools can be a partner in development rather than an enemy. And I think that's also an interesting vehicle for, yes, these schools are better, 
but they can be better still. There are various vehicles we can use. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm pretty soon, uh, this will be the last question before I open it up to audience question and answer, but so that we can sort of now project into the farther future, what do you think education's gonna look like both in these parts of the world and even in more developed countries in 10 or 20 years down the road, and what would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I don't like predicting the future, actually, you know, it's a little unknown. But, I, you know, because I, I prefer, okay, the present, and you can then think trajectory. The present is clearly, in the developing world, the emerging economies, clearly private schools are, are the preferred choice of the poor, and clearly the incentives are in the right direction. As I said, the technology now is coming into education. I would think the private sector will grow and flourish and become even stronger in the developing world. Um, but, you know, what, what, why bother predicting that in a way? Why not just focus on the present and say there's work to be done, let's get stuck in there and let the future sort itself out? But, you know, so, uh, you know that's what I would say. I had to ask you about the future because I pride myself on asking the tough questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it They're, is a tough you're question. You're not going to just yeah. come in here and get softballs. Okay. Even so, though we published the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, in America and Britain, um, a lot of people are excited, aren't they, about the technological prospects now in, in schooling. And I, I, I'm one of these, I'm somewhat skeptical that technology can really transform public education. I think the public system, the unions and the powers that be will find ways of thwarting and keeping pretty much, I reckon, you know, pretty similar, you know, schooling will reign somewhat similar over the next decade. Mm -hmm. But I'm quite excited about, if you like, I mean, what we've seen in the rest of the world is grassroots privatization, isn't it? It's people saying we're not content with the lack of innovation and the low standards in the public schools, so we're going to grasp it for ourselves and transform, you know, and grassroots privatize. privatize. I wonder could something similar happen here with technology, homeschooling, for instance, and then hybrid models of homeschooling academies or homeschooling co-ops, and then some charter schools, but then charter schools getting frustrated with bureaucracy. Some of the entrepreneurs who are running charter schools are terrific. I mean, I go to some of these charter schools, I think they're marvelous places. I would love to have gone there as a kid myself. But you also see they're somewhat limited. I was amazed to discover the figure that after 15 years of charter schools, it's still only about four, four and a half percent of children go to them in America. Um, all that controversy and as our, you know, the, your critics know, you've no doubt heard about all those millions or even billions of dollars thrown at by hedge fund philanthropists, you know, all that money going into these sco schools and there's still only less than, so it's still only 4% of children going to them. I, I was in a, in a charter school, one of the best schools I've seen, run by Sabas in Springfield, Massachusetts. I think it had about 1,500 kids in it. It had a genuine waiting list of 3,000 children. And after a few years, it, it applied to open a second charter school to cater for some of that unmet demand. It was turned down. It was turned down once, twice, three times. And I sort of think, well, some of these people, entrepreneurs running these charter schools, they're going to get fed up with that. Maybe they will create low-cost private schools here. Maybe there is something, and they could be this hybrid of, you know, technological blended learning model. Maybe they could creep up mm -hmm. and transform the education system here. But I wouldn't like to bet on it here. 
whereas I can easily bet on it, and I have bet on it with my own money in these other countries. I'm certainly not going to make any bets about <laughs> uh, greater privatization of schools here, but I certainly hope it's going to happen. We have seen that trajectory, but it's always a battle. Uh, but with that, uh, I'm going to open up to question and answer. What I ask is that you raise your hand. We do have two people with microphones here. I'll call on you, and then if you could, stand up, give your name, your affiliation, and then we try and keep the sermonizing to a minimum and mainly get to a question. You've only uh, just so, told me that. You know. What's that? You've only just told me that. Sorry. Well, you get to sermonize. <laughs> oh, That's your, your job. Um, but I will ruthlessly ask you to please stop gently, actually, if you do sermonize for too long. And so we have our first one right up here. Right, that man right there, you're standing right next to him. Maybe if we can get the other microphone over that side, good coverage. I'm Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Um, you say that the international development uh, community in the UK is getting better, but what is the role, uh, what should be the role, um, should there be a role for, uh, uh, for an international development community in encouraging these schools. <laughs> yeah, so you you saw the way I sort of dodged that question, didn't I, when it was asked earlier? So you're not letting me dodge it, because I was saying they're certainly getting better, but the fundamental question is, should they be involved? Um, well, here's the reality, isn't it? The reality is poor parents have said what they they want, they prefer these private schools. The second data point of the, I think the Americans say, is that a lot of aid can be very destructive. You could totally distort that market if aid came in and was, you know, perhaps, um, you know, created, uh, destroyed the market, just created a non-market there. So those two factors say, okay, maybe you, maybe this shouldn't be there. However, if, aid is going to these places, then one would rather it was spent on initiatives like the one in Lagos, which seems to be potentially capable of improving the market, than going into public schools where you know, it seems to be perhaps wasted. But should aid be there at all? After decades of experience of aid not doing any good, I mean, it's very hard, for, it's very hard, you know, if you came to countries I work in and wanted to see an aid project that's doing good in those countries, I'd be hard pressed to find one. And so my, I have to be a bit agnostic about this and say, I'm, I'm not sure it should be there really. But if it's there, then I'd like it to be directed to projects that are doing something beneficial. Have hey, I still dodged what? it? I think you got, well, he can tell you whether you dodged it, but I liked your answer. Yeah. Uh, we'll go right up here. Jim Lowen, private scholar, author of uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, which is about education. Uh, two quick questions that both tie in with parents. Uh, a lot of kids don't have the parents they deserve. These kids, I suspect, just looking at them, have fine, interesting, involved parents. Yeah. Of course, we know a lot of kids in America only have one parent or, in some cases, zero. Um, how, then, uh, do we serve them? They cannot be served because they don't have parents that can pay for private education or even do the research to choose it. And then secondly, uh, and I've met some of these people, a lot of folks have weird parents. Uh, for example, in South Carolina, I've met way right-wing neo-Confederate parents who would put their kids, 
either in homeschooling or neo-Confederate uh, yeah. schools that yeah. uh, truly teach white supremacy BS history, for example, uh, what kind of uh, yeah. fragmentation, you know, that doesn't give the kids a fair shake. No. So, so on, on, on the weird ones first, because I'm guessing implied in your question is therefore... Yeah, so, but a lot of people use that idea of the weird parents, first of all, and saying, therefore, you know, we've got to have much more control, probably we've got to have public education so that we don't have the weird parents, you know, running amok. Okay. And the, the answer to that, I think, is how many weird parents are there and are there other ways of dealing with them? Now, in the communities we work in, typically the weird parents, um, people assume, will be those who want their children to blow themselves up or to take, rocket, you know, take grenades into a shopping mall in Kenya, you know, that sort of thing. And there, there's been some very interesting research about this. First of all, everyone assumes, so the madrasas are what's supposed to be there. Everyone assumes that these are widespread in developing countries. There's some very good work from the World Bank showing actually the madrasas are very tiny in number in Pakistan, which is assumed to be the home of them, what is going on is that there are these low-cost private schools run by Muslims. So I know Hyderabad in India is very similar to this situation in Pakistan. They're run by Muslims. They maybe start with a Muslim prayer, and then they're purely secular. And so people see these schools, see someone you know, with a long beard, and say, ah, that must be a madrasa. They're not madrasas, okay? My view, and, and then there's, I've forgotten the name of this book. Um, there was an excellent book published on the origins of terrorist, terrorists who've, you know, 9-11 and, and, and I think since, where, where did they go to school? Predominantly they went to normal public schools, normal public universities. A small minority went to, I think it's, and I think it's two madrasas in, in Indonesia. Two in, madrasas in Indonesia are a problem. It's a very small number anyway. The majority of these, these lunatics don't go, are not into that sort of, so my guess is they're very small in number. Can we not use other, you know, the rule of law, other laws to stop those lunatics and let the private sector develop beautifully as it is? So that was a long answer to the lunatics question. And the first one was, those are too poor. These ones have got, but I mean, the uniforms and, you know, they, they, look, they look terrific kids, typically in the schools, the parents are on the poverty line. The mother and father are both illiterate. Um, they're working in what we would call menial, daily paid jobs. But yes, those, if you've got two or even one parent who are working, then they can afford the private school and something is, is, is okay there. If they're not, what do we do about them? The first thing to say is the poorest of the poor, those, they can't afford public schools either, because in public schools you've still got to have uniforms, books, transport, because the schools are often further away. And, the, and, and, and our data shows this. You cannot afford, if you're the poorest of the poor, you can't afford private, but you can't afford government either. And, but you're right, there are some, and so our work, so alongside I created Omega Schools with, with Ken Donko in Ghana, a, a company, but we've also created a foundation, which is a hardship fund and we want to provide at least 5%, hopefully 10% of free places to the kids in the school who are orphans, you know, who are clearly those cases who are, 
who are, 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 can't afford it. And I would love other people to come into that. It's possible, you know, could government come in as, with targeted vouchers? Well, perhaps they also could. So there is room for this philanthropy for the poorest of the poor. Um, but don't be misled into thinking that it's a unique problem for the private schools. Okay, we have one. We'll go to the back there in a, sort of a beige suit. <clears throat> Stefan Bielski, Bielski 2B School and Education Advisory. I'm going to presume that you dealt, you, deal, you mostly contrasted and compared elementary education dealing with sort of the basics, reading, writing, arithmetic. Did you see at a, at a little bit older age, say secondary, where there's training for uh, particular trades, what's the yeah. what's happening there, and and what com contrast that with the public system and and private? Yeah, we we haven't done much work. We haven't done much research in that area, so I I, I can't contrast there. Um, probably, anecdotally, I can say I think there's a problem in both public and private schools in the countries we're working in here, and the problem is because. America is quite unique in this way. You don't have the national end of school exam, which is uniform across the country and a national curriculum leading up to that. Um, you have individual high school diplomas, if I understand. Unfortunately, it's coming. It's if coming, you were yeah. an event But anyway, in the countries I work in, in, in Ghana, it is a national exam. In India, it's a de facto national exam, or at the state level, at least. Um, and um, the, if you get as far as junior or senior high school, a lot of kids will obviously leave before that. If you get that far, then that is the show that that's the show in town that you want to concentrate on. It's the signaling that particularly the poor need in order to convince, you know, higher education jobs that they're any good. And I'm not sure it's great on human capital development, to use those words. It's it's over focuses on the signaling, it under focuses on actually developing real skills, life skills. And, and so on that will be useful. So I think there's, now, uh, this is not research-based, and I could be wrong here, but I think there's a huge area, and I'm sure some people are getting involved here, there's a huge area for private entrepreneurs, for private charities, civil society, to get involved at promoting life skills, entrepreneurship, um, you know, business development, skills that are appropriate to work at that higher level. In our chain of schools, this is one of our priorities. We're now, we've now just opened a senior high school for girls. Um, we're, we've got junior high schools. This is a huge priority for us to try and get away from the signaling emphasis and focus on human capital development for things that will be really relevant to, in this case, those girls' lives after school. But it is a problem. But I think, again, the private sector is well-placed to cope with it. Okay, we will go down here now. My name is Pablo Rodas, former chief economist of the Central American Bank for Economic Integration. You have mentioned these kinds of, uh, these examples of failures in, in some developed, developed countries. Uh, surely there are more cases, more failures. But if you see the history of the 19th century, 20th century in Europe, for instance, they build the human capital based mainly on public schools. If you see the history of all these East Asian miracles economies, after the Second World War, they build the miracle based on public system schools. Even if you take, for instance, the case of Hong Kong, that is the 
example of the most free market economy. Which one, sorry? The Hong Kong. Uh, it was based on the, on the British system, on public school. Then uh, I have two questions here. One, if history has shown that it can work, uh, I mean, why not to accept the challenge, the fight, and try to build this for the African countries, for some Latin American countries? And the second, if you follow your idea on education, and because also if you see the hospitals in some developing countries or the security or the judicial system, then you will say, let's privatize everything. I mean, let's go for completely private hospitals, completely private policemen, completely private judicial system. Yeah. Then you will have an atomization and no institutions. Yeah. Then, well, what would you say about this? Yeah. Oh, thank you. The two questions. The second one first, I mean, far be, far be it from me to come to the Cato Institution Cato Institute and tell, talk about privatizing everything. Um, however, I would say other scholars are noticing a grassroots privatization of health, which is somewhat parallel to education in the developing countries I'm working in. Other people are noticing privatization even of security. I mean, you think of gated communities for the rich, um, the poor get perhaps the worst deal. Um, and some, some people are even private security for poor, poor communities. I noticed that in Honduras when I was just there. Um, but the first question, this is really fascinating because with all due respect, I think you've come up with the accepted wisdom. The accepted wisdom is that, so Britain, my country, we developed um, on the basis of public education, that's how we got there. And it's not true. I mean, our, we, our, we were the greatest industrial nation in the, in the, in the early 19th century. Um, public education didn't come in until 1870. Well, well after, I mean, we had almost reached our prime by then, um, past our prime by then. But there were some small subsidies from 1833. In leading up to 1870, there was lots of agitation from, if I may say, it was probably rather like the development experts today. It was those, you know, rich, concerned people in, in England who were saying, you know, we can't, we, we can't have, you know, we need a public education system to help raise things that are for the poor. And there was a survey done by, it was called the Newcastle Commission by Lord Newcastle. And it was a very thorough study, actually, very thorough study, sending people into lots of poor areas. And its conclusion, published, I think, in 1861, was schooling is almost universal. This goes back to the question asked earlier about, you know, how many parents couldn't afford schooling? Well, in mid-19th century England and Wales, I think it was, um, schooling was almost universal about 95% of children were in school for about five, I think it was about five years, which was the typical schooling at that time. And when Forster presented his 1870 bill to the House of Commons, he explicitly said, and it's amazing to go back and read this now, we're not here to replace the system. And then the people in the Lords were saying the same thing in the equivalent of your Senate. They were saying the same thing. We're not here to replace the system, which is based on churches, based on philanthropy, but also based on what we call the Dame Schools, low-cost private schools. We're not here to replace that system. We're there to fill in the gaps where it's not working well. In other words, to focus on that 5% and maybe a few more of where the schools aren't working well. Well, the rest is history, isn't it? I mean, once you've got the state involved, you start crowding out. You've got some amazing stories from the late 1880s, 1890s, even 1900s of 
private proprietors, churches, um, saying we're being pushed out. You know, the school boards have got, got free schools or very low price. You know, we can't compete anymore. And, and the private system that was there was pushed out. In the book, I then go to India, chapter 11, I think. It's a historical story there. Why this book is called The Beautiful Tree is because Gandhi, in 1931, was talking in London. He was saying, the British came and destroyed the schooling system. India was more literate before the British came. And the British came and uprooted the beautiful tree. This is his words. And he quoted some sources. I went back to those sources in the India room of the British Library. And again, in, I think it was 1820s, Sir Thomas Munro, the, um, who was uh, the president of the Madras presidency in India, he, he commissioned a very thorough study as well. Because again, the British wanted to get involved in schooling in India. And again, they found a huge and vibrant schooling market. This wasn't explicit at the time you look at it. These were low-cost private schools in poor parts of India before the British came. The beautiful tree that Gandhi described was, in fact, the beautiful tree of low-cost private schools. That's hence the name. So I, I think you're wrong. I, I think there's a similar story or a slightly different story, but comparable. You can describe about New York, Massachusetts, New South Wales, how, again, private enterprise was there, was eventually pushed out by government. So the story you have, I'm afraid, is not true of how Britain became great. How, you know, there's a private solution here. Yeah, I was going to say there is a very analogous situation in the United States where there was very widespread education before there was public provision. And public provision, in fact, uh, David Tyack, a well-known historian of American education, said that one of the reasons that public provision wasn't particularly um, uh, debated was because it was essentially the public sector saying, we're gonna do what you're already doing, we're gonna give you money for it. Um, and so it was already widespread here as well, but that, I'm gonna just take my prerogative as moderator, because this leads into a question I was gonna ask. Mm. Um, and, and just tell me what you think about this, because you know a lot more about the international scene than I do, but it seems where in the areas where, where you've looked, you see the for-profit enterprises in education working to provide basic education at the very least, and then yeah. probably moving up. It strikes me that if you look at a lot of developed countries, in particular you mentioned Hong Kong, but you can look in lots of East Asian mm -hmm. countries, the major for-profit sector now is at the top end preparing people to take the, the college exams and things like that. Do you think there's any underlying reason why you see one, you know, you see for-profit working in both areas. Yeah. Why is one at the very kind of the beginning, the, the, the foundation, and the other as toward the end? Yeah. I mean, my guess is that public education has crowded out at the, at the elementary and, and high school level that there, there is the emphasis in the countries described, there's the, always the emphasis, you've got to have universal public education. Governments are committed to that. Um, they provide for that. Some cases they do it very well. Like, you know, none of my arguments suggest that Hong Kong or South Korea governments can't do this well. Or actually none of my arguments says that governments can't do some things well. I mean, in India, I'm sure, their nuclear weapons will go off as they want them to when, you know, God, heaven forbid they're... It's just in some areas, you know, governments can do things very well in some areas if they focus on them enough and they're high enough priority. Um, that's a terrible thing to say, I know, but 
you know, but it's not true of education. So if governments, governments can do it well, but they, they will crowd out this air, the private sector in this area. They might crowd it out in our minds too. I mean, I think Ivan Illich, um, you know, who wrote Deschooling Society in the 70s, he had a wonderful line. I probably won't, I'll probably misquote it now, but something like public education is government's way of advertising that this is the only way to do education, something like that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all victims or we're all products of either public education itself, I certainly went to public education, or in the government sense, in, in your sense, um, or we know that that's what the majority are doing. And we all, it's hard to think outside that box, I think. I mean, I, I think that's, those are probably the reasons, but I don't know the reasons. Right. Well, no. Charles Glenn put it well in the title mm. of his well-known book, The Myth of the Common School, yes. where we tend to just assume that government yeah. has always provided education and that's how it must be. Yeah. Uh, but now yeah. I took my prerogative. We'll go back to, to audience question and answer, and we'll go right here, the man in the white shirt. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, my name is Richard. I'm <clears throat> a furloughed Fred, just, uh, furloughed Fed, just coming out of the rain. Uh, do either of you have any data on what is happening in New Orleans where the school system was essentially destroyed seven years ago? And uh, I was once told by an educator, anybody who wants to be on the cutting edge of education should go to New Orleans. Is that happening? Should I? I mean, you might have data, but I have, I went to New Orleans um, I wrote a book called From Village School to Global Brand about this company, Sabbath. They're running charter schools in New Orleans and uh, elsewhere in Louisiana. And it certainly seems, if, if you believe charter schools are the way forward and create some good, um, then I think that's the place to go to create charter schools and to really move that revolution forward. Um, so certainly the partial answer is yes, if charter schools are... Are, are, are something special. Um, I mean, do you want to? Yeah, well, all I can say is I haven't spent a whole lot of time on New Orleans. The, Tulane has a center mm. that has done a lot of the study of the educational change in New Orleans. Mm. And what it seems to suggest is that this moving to this primarily charter model, which is hardly a free market, but it's a little better because you yeah. have ostensibly private entities with more uh, flexibility running schools, yeah. that it seems to have uh, benefits and seems to be moving New Orleans along. I do think, though, that you have to be careful about extrapolating New Orleans because, I mean, something extraordinary happened there that led to this situation. So yeah. you, you certainly can't say, well, everybody should just replicate what, what's occurred in New Orleans. But I think there is, to the extent that there is research and there is research out there, it tends to show pretty strongly that moving toward a, a, a less regulated more um, consumer-driven mm. uh, system seems to work better. Yeah. Is it serving a majority of kids yet, though? No, pre presumably not. I think it is. Oh, is it? Really? I think it is. Yeah. I'd have to look again yeah. at the, yeah. the numbers. But yeah. a lot of that is because so many people left okay. and didn't return. Yeah. So it's hard to adjust for those sorts yeah. of things. But yeah. I'm not an expert on New Orleans, and yeah. you'd really want to start with this. Tulane uh, has done a lot of work on that. Mm. Okay, now behind him. This guy in the middle has been... We'll Smiling in the middle. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Dave Price, and I spent about four decades working in and writing about America's public education system. And I guess based on that, I have a really simple idea of what good education is. 
Um, it's good teachers, whatever they are, teaching good things to kids at an appropriate time that they need them. Now, having said that, uh, what I'm interested in, when you talk about the difference between public and, and any level of, of you know, nonprofit or for-profit schools, do you see a significant difference in the type of person that goes into teaching and their skills? Yeah. And then even more importantly, in what they teach. I think anyone would say that one of the major problems, I, well, I shouldn't say anyone, most people would say one of the major problems in public education today, as it is in all government, is bureaucracy. So if you could address two areas, I mean, you, you kind of touched on them, but by teacher, teacher quality, and then what is taught comparatively in the two yeah. schools. I, I mean, I, obviously as educators, we, we agree teachers are important, although I, I think we must never forget that it's the learning that's the most important. And teachers can be a way of children learning, but there are other ways of learning too. I'm very impressed by some of the blended learning models using some technology as well as teachers um, to, to help learning. So, you know, I don't think we've got to go overboard. And sometimes teachers are, get rather too precious about themselves. Um, but in terms of just the simple question, are there different types of people teaching in the private and the public schools? If that's, you know, in these, in these work, work places we're working, they're completely different. They are absolutely different. The teachers in the public schools will typically be well-trained. I mean, have gone to teacher training college or got their bachelor's in education or a master's in education and will have a government job. And they're typically better educated, um, higher, higher um, socioeconomic status. The teachers in the low-cost private schools are typically from the community themselves. In the elementary schools, they're all typically high school graduates teaching elementary school, possibly they might be doing their undergraduate um, simultaneously. And they're, whereas the teachers in the public schools are there for life, the teachers in the private schools are there for two or three or four years while they're saving up money to do something else, um, typically. So the private schools have to focus on that. And, you know, in Omega schools, what we do is say, okay, we know our, teacher, our teachers here, we know probably they're better anyway at getting standards than the public school teachers for whatever reason and we focus on how to improve them even better. So we have a two-week intensive training at the beginning. Um, we're trying to increase that to four weeks. We, have, we prepare lesson plans for them, because what's one of the things you get from teacher training is how to prepare lesson plans. We prepare them for them. We prepare workbooks for the students linked to the lesson plans. We prepare assessments, because that's another difficult skill that teachers get trained in, or actually get, don't get trained in very well, but it's a, very important. So actually, we, we sort of, if you like, we, we do paraskilling. We say, okay, you're going to be there in the classroom, but we'll do a lot of it for you in head office. So although you're unskilled, we can make your standards higher. And then we, we accept that you're only going to be here two or three years. So we make the most of you while you're here. But because of these other things, we can hand over to another teacher. We, we give a video pack as well of showing good and bad practice in the schools as a lead teacher, as mentor, you know, there's various things we do. Um, so you can develop teachers in that way. So the, the, the difference is absolute. Sorry, your second question, I... Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. And, and this, is, this is really, this is one of the greatest problems I still see, and, and it's, there's a room for an entrepreneur to come in now and transform this. As I said earlier, in the, gov in the government and private schools, typically you have to follow the national curriculum and go for the national testing. Even if you felt you didn't want to obey the government rules, poor parents, you know, very conservative, worried about that signaling, they will insist you follow that. So, you know, you, ha you have to follow rough, roughly the same, except in the lower grades, 
you know, maybe in elementary school up to grade six or seven, you've got more freedom. And you'll typically see the private schools focusing more on literacy and numeracy at the expense of some of the other subjects that, that are supposed to be there, but they can develop them later. No, not much good doing social studies in English if you can't read in English. So let's get your reading first and then do that. So, but there's room for an entrepreneur to come in here and create an alternative assessment system that could be there for these private schools. Now, I understand I was neglecting someone in the middle as you, <laughs> sir. So right, almost exactly in the middle, right there, he's holding a notebook. Here comes the microphone. He's in the middle, so no one will go to him. <laughs> That's right. It's very hard to work your way in there. Hi, I, I'm Michael Cronin. I'm a PhD math student. Um, my question was, I was wondering if you could put in perspective, either in terms of purchasing power parity or in terms of the income that people have, the, uh, the tuitions that you were giving, like $1 in, in India, yeah. what would that mean in the United States? Okay, so, so the, the, what, what we've done here is saying, we, we've defined, we've got a definition now of low cost or lowest cost private schools. We are saying if you're a family on the $1.25 poverty line, which is at purchasing power parity, 2005 prices, but if you're at that $1.25, so in other words, this is equivalent, isn't it, to $1.25, 2000 in the US, and then just inflation. So what's inflation been since 2005 in the US? $1.25 then is worth what? $1.50? Okay, something like that now. Inflation's not great. Anyway, so that sort of figure at purchasing power parity in the countries we're working in, if you're on that poverty line, then and you're an average-sized family, then you don't have to spend more than 10% of your total family income to send all your children to these lowest-cost private schools. It's quite a convoluted way of saying it. So in other words, think of 10% of your total family income, and that will cover all your fees. That's development fee, registration fee, tuition fee, exam fee, PTA fee. That will cover all your fees for all your children in these private schools. So I guess if you're thinking of poverty line in the US, what's poverty line here? Is it $12,000 a year or? Somewhere around there. Somewhere around. So 10%, $1,200 per year could cover, well, so maybe your two children here, that would cover your children. So it's that sort of, I think that's one way of comparing the prices. Um, another way of comparing them is to say, what could work here as a low cost private school? And I reckon, if you got it down to about $1,500 per person, per child per year, that would be somewhat equivalent to what we're doing over there. So there's, there's two, two attempts at it. Not totally satisfactory either, I know, but you know, we're, we're trying to get to this, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do we have any other questions for Professor Tooley? I'm gonna say going once, there's one. I knew somebody had one. Thank you for coming. My name is Anna Steele. My question is back to India. With such a, a low tuition for these families, how are the schools actually built and the teachers paid and government recognition pursued and, and these yeah. other costs? Yeah. So, so, so what you've got to remember is that if you're in a poor area, everything is lower cost, isn't it? So tuition fees are lower cost but then salaries are lower cost, um, laborers for building are lower cost, you know, you can get everything at a lower cost. And 
although with some exceptions, prices in slums now are rocketing, but typically they will also be land or rent will be lower cost and so on. So, I mean, that's, that's the answer to the question. Everything, I, I mean, and, and you don't have to, excuse me, you don't have to believe me that this model is working because in India, as I say, we reckon there are 300,000 of these low-cost private schools. In Anglophone West Africa, at least uh, um, 100,000. That's, that's a guess. In Lagos itself, probably, Lagos itself, probably 8,000. Lagos a city state, uh, in a city state, yeah, in Nigeria, 8,000 of them alone. Um, so clearly, they are making it work. Clearly, they have found a way of paying the teachers, providing the materials, building the schools, and so on, that will deliver a small surplus to the entrepreneur or whoever's running the schools to make them survive. They are sustainable, so clearly they must solve that problem. Obviously, I know in Omega schools that we're running, you know, we, we can build a school, it's probably about 75,000 US dollars now equivalent, including land, the buildings, a computer lab, 12 classrooms, you know. The, so that's rather different from building a charter school here, I guess, which is probably five or six million dollars. You see how the prices are so different? That applies to the whole sector. Any other questions? Oh, oh suddenly good, many. Good in the, uh, all the way in the back, I think he might be right behind the, the, the rope there. There you go, keep going. We've got a lot of time. We've got time for about two uh, more questions. My name is Samar Chatterjee um, uh, from Washington, D.C. Sir, in, in your presentation, you uh, talked about private and for-profit and things like that. And I was just wondering who you wrote the book for, because I come from India, where most people that I know of understand that private is definitely better. They come up with ways to even collect donation money because, you know, to enter some of those schools, you need to pay a donation. So the, through beg, borrow, and steal, a lot of people yeah. who are even lower middle class, uh, of course, rich and middle class can afford to pay those things. Uh, they try to send them to. And there was a talk, somebody mentioned public school. Now in India, the public schools are the rich ones. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. It may have come from. Oh, it came from, from England. England. I can explain that. It's our fault. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and That's why I've been so hesitant using the word public right. schools. Right. There yeah. were the pri private schools, like even Indira yeah. Gandhi's sons went to those public schools, which yeah. were very expensive and so on. So, yeah. anyway, uh, are you trying to, with your book, teach the West? Yeah. Or because most people in India would know whatever you're talking about. And my pr point is that private is good, for-profit may not be. Ah, excellent. Um, it, it, the book, I mean, one, my, one of my few claims to fame is this was a bestseller temporarily in India for a week or two. So, um, and it's not just about India. But, but, and just on that public thing, you know, George Bernard Shaw said, I think that the British and the Americans are divided by a common language. Um, I, I wrote this in British English. It had to be translated into American English. Um, and one of the translations has this public schools. So when we talk about in England and in India followed this tradition, the public schools are the elite private schools. Um, but don't worry, I haven't made that confusion when I'm working in the slums and got confused. No, what I'm talking about is what you call private schools, um, independent schools, although in India, 
they, they still call them private schools, but public schools something different. Yeah. Um, well, you say that everyone knows in India. I mean, I started this research in 2000 in India, and I went into the slums and found these low-cost private schools. Then I came back first to India, so I went to um, people in, in Hyderabad and then Delhi, and I told them about this story. I think probably I mentioned it in here, and they mostly disbelieved me because they said sort of what you were implying. Well, private schools are for the middle classes, the rich, and so on. Private schools are not for the poor. So, you know, you probably got confused about what you were finding there. Um, now, of course, people are realizing these schools exist. I, to be honest, I, mean, I hate to shout about this, but I think it's in part because of our work over the years. We've been talking about this nonstop to prominent Indians. Um, but you're right. Now the sector is much more widely accepted. Uh, you know, a famous po politician in India, I won't mention his name or what dynasty he comes from, but he said, um, no, not one parent in India today chooses to send his or her child to a government school by choice. Everyone knows the private sector is there. And that's sort of what I was saying earlier about, you know, this stuff is for the, for the West is very outrageous sometimes. For, for people in India now, it's much less outrageous, except, so I can challenge you, sir, and I beg you to read the book to get this challenge in writing. You say non-profit is the way forward. In India, for-profit schooling is more or less outlawed. There was a 1991 Unikrishnan Supreme Court, judge, Supreme Court judgment, the Unikrishnan judgment, which said, more or less said for-profit education wasn't allowed. That judgment has been slightly, re partially revoked. No one's quite clear whether it's allowed or not, but certainly the examples don't allow you to be for-profit. But so schools there are de facto for-profit. Some very prominent people, the, the founder of Pratham, um, Madhav Chavan is coming out and say, let's allow these schools to be not just de facto, but de jure for profit, because otherwise the transparency is lacking. You get people running schools, as you say, for donations to make themselves rich. The non-profit schools, let the for-profit be transparent, let them attract investment, and let this sector flourish. So I think there's still things that we can, I can challenge you and we can disagree on, sir. All right, we have time for one more question. This puts uh, extra pressure on the questioner because this has to really bring it all home. Um, <laughs> so we'll go. There was a hand in the back. It's been up for a while, all the way back. Please keep your hand up. Here it comes. Hello, I'm Anusha from India. I work in the development sector. I've worked with uh, Right to Education as well. I feel that uh, a lot of private schools have come up, but the quality of education of m almost... 80 to 90 percent of those schools are questionable because the teachers there are probably high school graduates who just focus on uh, ensuring the child gets good marks in, in, in the examination, but not really quality. But a uh, lot of poor parents want to send their children to those schools because it's English medium schools. They want their children to call their mommy and daddy. I mean, that's 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 most of the reasons why they would send their children to a private school rather than the government school because also the accountability in government schools is difficult to come by yeah. and uh, demand. Uh, and the second reason uh, I feel that private uh, education India is still not ready because private uh, schools, uh, the registration is very iffy. I mean, they can just realize that the costs are not working. They shut down. So what happens to those children? And a lot of those children actually end up going back to 
government schools. Okay. So how would so you... There's quite a lot there. Yeah, so, 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 so first of all, let's be absolutely clear on this, and I, I don't want there to be any ambiguity here. Study after study, and there's a recent study um, showing from, from Andhra Pradesh showing something similar. Study after study shows the low-cost private schools or private schools serving these poor communities are better than the government alternative, okay? So it may be a very low mark. You know, the accountability is not there in the government schools, but let's at least give these schools credit where credit is due, okay? And that's the first thing. Secondly, these schools are private schools. They can be improved. They can be improved more easily than the government system. People like you, people like me, can come in and assist these schools in the improvement process, the incentives are all in the right direction. So whereas, I mean, people have been trying to improve the public schools, as we say in America, the government schools in India, for decades, making perhaps not as much progress as you'd want. The private schools are much easier to move in the right direction, second. Third, you're, you're dismissing parents, poor parents, and I, I feel upset by this, actually, when people dismiss poor parents' desire for a particular type of education. You're dismissing them. They're only English medium. Why do they want English medium? Well, I'll tell you why they want English medium. English, English for whatever reason, is the international language. It's the language of business in India. It's the language of commerce. It's the language of everything middle class and above in India. And I'd like to say, why are public schools, why are government schools so, so keen on not giving the children, something that is part of their liberation, part of their way of, of moving out of poverty. Uh, you can talk to any poor parent and they will say, I've done this recently, I was in rural Gujarat talking to parents about what sort of private school we should open in the village. Do you want it to be English medium or Gujarati medium? English medium, English medium. Why do you want English medium? Because that's the way our children can get the jobs, that's the way our children can progress. Gujarat, we can teach them Gujarati at home. I, I think it's a really important point, and I'm sorry that people feel inclined to dismiss this preference on poor parents' um, behalves. I think it's a genuine preference, and the private schools are meeting that demand, and they're meeting it better than the public schools. Well, I got too emotional there, didn't I? That was a bad way to end. Well, I um, think that was an excellent way to end. And so I thank you for the question. I thank you for the enthusiasm. And I hope everyone will thank Professor Tooley for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you.